Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview Jesse Coleman. Now, Jesse served with the FBI for nearly 28 years, and he spent most of his career working drug investigations, targeting organized crime figures, and pursuing high-profiled violent drug gang members. He is interviewed about the two-year period he went undercover, deep undercover, as a drug dealer selling cocaine and heroin to made members of a Sicilian mob family. During the undercover investigation, he secretly recorded more than 200 conversations between him and the subjects. The case was initiated by a meeting he had with these crime figures at a little pizza shop in Claymont, Delaware. Jesse's efforts resulted in the arrest and conviction of not only 20 members of the family operating here in the U.S., but of its leader, who was based in Sicily, Italy. Jesse was awarded the Department of Justice's Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Agent of the Year for his undercover role in this investigation. What Jesse has to say about going undercover and dealing with informants is very interesting. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to it, I want to talk about my blog post. I forgot to mention last week that I did write a blog post about the TV show Quantico on ABC. I titled it An Open Letter to the Writers, Producers, and Fans of the TV show Quantico. And it got a great response. Not only did I get a reply back from the creator of the show and from the writer's room, I heard back from lots of fans on the show, got lots of tweets and everybody shared it. I watched probably 13 of the 25 episodes. And you know, it really wasn't that bad. Now, there were, of course, exaggerations and embellishments, but I kind of prejudged the show. And you could tell by watching it that either they had the full cooperation of FBI headquarters or they had a former agent working with them as a technical advisor because they did get a lot of things right. I mean, everything was portrayed as bright and shiny versions of the real FBI Academy and, and real headquarters. But you know what? It really wasn't that bad because the main thing they got is the FBI's core mission to stay ahead of the threat and to protect the American people. And the bottom line is that the ABC show Quantico is reaching a new and diverse generation of boys and girls who now want to be FBI agents when they grow up. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. So if you want to check out that blog post, it's on my website, jerrywilliams.com. It's on my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author. And there's a link to it on Twitter, at jerrywilliams1. So let's start the interview. I do have a crime fiction recommendation for The Life We Bury by Alan Eskins. So stick around and I'll talk to you about that book after the interview with Jesse. I am thrilled to introduce you to my guest, Jesse Coleman. Hey, Jerry. This is fantastic. You know, I have admired you uh, my entire career, which was spent most of it in Philadelphia, the same as you. I've watched you not only work your cases, but also mentor all of the agents in the office. Uh, you're a role model, and I am absolutely thrilled that I get to talk to you and to share your story or part of your story with the uh, listeners of FBI Retired Case File Review. So thank you. That's an amazing compliment. Uh, great. Uh, I don't know what to say to that, but thank you very much for those kind words. All right. So you have so many cases that we could talk about, so many successful investigations. But what did you decide that we're going to talk about today? Um, we're going to talk about the a long-term undercover investigation that was a drug investigation that targeted the Sicilian, a Sicilian heroin trafficking organization, which was based in Sicily, but with tentacles throughout the United States. And I was an undercover agent there, long-term undercover back in the late 80s. I'll talk about that. Okay. But before we get started, 
Could you tell us a little bit about you? You know, when you joined the FBI, why you joined the FBI, and, you know, a little bit about your background. All right. Well, I'm from a small steel town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The town's name is McKeesport, Pennsylvania. My father was a fire chief, a fire captain, I'm sorry, for the local fire department. He was the first African-American fire officer hired in that city's history. His brother and his brother-in-law were both police officers, and they were among the first African-American police officers in that city. So I had this law enforcement background. So when I graduated from college in the 70s, um, I considered the FBI and actually applied, but I was only 21 years old and was not old enough to become an FBI agent. I think the age was 23 at the time. It may still be the case. What made you interested in the FBI? Well, I mean, if you're going to be in law enforcement, you consider that one of the top law enforcement jobs you ha- you can get. And so I just, it was almost like, a, on, let me just try this is what, what I was going to do. I, I really didn't have that plan, but I said, let me try this. And I, I applied. Uh, I was too young to be an agent, so I became a support employer, as it was called at that time, a clerk, which is uh, a position in the FBI where you kind of just do work to help investigations, but you're not an investigator. You know, I worked the okay. radio, I worked the teletype machines and communications equipment back in those days. And when I became old enough, I took the agent's test and eventually passed it and became an FBI agent. I did all this in Philadelphia, which is where I moved after graduating from college. I worked in the Philadelphia office of the FBI as a clerk, and when I became an agent, I was assigned to the Philadelphia FBI office, so that's the only office that I ever worked in in the FBI. Why did you not get transferred out of the area? What what happened? Well, back then, I think it was 1979 or 1980, uh, when I was in agent's class, I was going to be transferred to another city just like all the other new agents were, but uh, there was a federal ruling that kind of invalidated the FBI transfer policy for a short time. So all the agents and agents class during that one short period were sent back to the offices that they were processed through. So I went back to Philadelphia to my surprise. And I stayed there the whole 30 years that I worked as an FBI agent. Most of us have had at least one transfer. I came in from Virginia. My first office was Sacramento, California. And then I went to Philadelphia. But you returned right back to Philadelphia and never were transferred anywhere else. Exactly. There were a number of agents in that category in Philadelphia and probably other cities that came in around the same time. And there were a number of guys, surprisingly, that did spend their entire career, some longer than me even, in Philadelphia. And what year is this? I came out, I went into agent's class in 1979, September. I came out in January of 1980. Okay. So what did you work your entire career? Did you work a variety of violations or did you specialize immediately? Initially, we all kind of, the new agents worked the background employment or applicant background investigations for a short period of time. And then I worked on a property crime squad. And then in the early 80s, the FBI got joint jurisdiction with the Drug Enforcement Administration for drug investigations. When we got joint jurisdiction, I immediately became a drug investigator and worked drug, violent drug gangs and drug cases for most of the 28 years that I was an FBI agent. Okay. So that leads us right into the case that we're going to talk about. Could you set it up? Tell us what was going on at the time and how the case started. Sure. Uh, Back in the 80s, the FBI in Philadelphia, New York, along the East Coast were targeting Sicilian-based heroin traffickers. There were several Sicilian mafia families that were based in Sicily that used pizza parlors through which they infiltrated heroin and cocaine into the United States. And they did this through uh, members of their their crime families that they would set up as employees in these pizza parlors. And they would just basically be extensions of the Sicilian mafia gang. Uh, We had tried to penetrate that gang. And uh, in my particular case, we had found an informant. Now, just let me explain how this works when it comes to being undercover. There is a case agent that's in charge of the investigation. I was not the case agent that was in charge of the investigation. I was recruited as an undercover agent to help with the investigation. So my role in the investigation was not one who was controlling, making decisions regarding the case, but I was introduced by a confidential informant into this criminal gang uh, as a drug customer looking to buy heroin. That's how it started, through the introduction of a confidential informant. In this particular case, the case agent was an agent by the name of Judy Tyler. Her job was... Yeah, we have 
Yeah, and we have interviewed Judy Tyler, so she has her own episode um, on FBI Retired Case File Review. Great, because you're going to talk about this case from the undercover side, and Judy has talked about it from the case agent side, so it's great. Okay, exactly. Well, as an undercover agent, uh, first of all, to be an undercover agent, and this was not going to be a long-term undercover operation. I was going to probably try to make some buys from a particular target that was introduced to me by this informant, and they were going to probably try to arrest that person, get him to cooperate against his suppliers, and eventually lead back to the uh, Sicilian heroin trafficking gang. But as it turned out, I got to be—I was more successful than we planned, and I was sucked into being a long-term undercover agent in this investigation. And, and just a word about being a long-term undercover agent in the FBI is that that's something you just don't automatically do. You have to be kind of vetted and approved to do that type of work because it's very difficult psychologically and emotionally to go through that. So you have to go through uh, Quantico, which is where we train FBI agents, and there's an undercover unit there. You have to go there. You have to take a series of psychological evaluations. You have to pass those evaluations. You have to be trained on what it's like to be undercover, what it's like to be separated from your fellow FBI agents and to pretend to be somebody that you're not for over a long period of time. So I went through all that training. I was introduced to these people, and I was introduced to to someone who operated a pizza parlor in Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware. I uh, made some buys of cocaine from this person, small buys of cocaine. Uh, they introduced me to other people who introduced me to other people. And before I knew it, I was in, in meeting on a regular basis with members of the Sicilian heroin trafficking gang. Who did they think you were? They thought I was a Philadelphia guy who was a middleman who had, a, who had drug customers in Philadelphia. And I was looking to get cocaine and heroin for them. Who vetted you? I mean, they, they had to do their own kind of due well, diligence to figure out who you were. Exactly. Well, what happens in the world, the people, there are greedy people in the world. And what happened in this particular case, I'll just set up what happened. We, uh, I made a number of buys from this pizza parlor owner in Delaware. I asked him if he could get me a supplier of heroin. He said he could. He introduced me to some people who said they had heroin. So we set up a, a major heroin buy of $250,000 worth of heroin, which was a kilogram of heroin which was to occur at his pizza parlor. We set up a scenario where the uh, heroin would be delivered to me, which it was, by a group of people who were Sicilian traffickers at this pizza parlor in Delaware. Uh, I met them there. I gave them $250,000 in government money. Um, after the transfer was made, they didn't leave the pizza parlor. I said, just wait here for me for a minute. I'm going to take this heroin and put it in the trunk of my car. I put the kilogram of heroin in the trunk of my car and in a prearranged scenario, the FBI raided the pizza parlor. We were all detained. I was pretending to be this drug dealer. Uh, the FBI seized the money that I had just given these drug traffickers. The scenario was that they did not seize the heroin. So they, the drug traffickers thought they had gotten away with the heroin because I put it in the trunk of my car, which the FBI allegedly never found. Now, this was all was set up by us. So having not found the heroin, we let these drug traffickers leave. The drug drafters thought that I had gotten away from the heroin, so they immediately contacted me and said, you got away with the drugs, you still owe us $250,000, which the government really seized. The government took their own money back. So that enabled me to have conversations with these guys and arrange to make periodic payments to them for the money that they thought that I owed them. And that's how the meetings began. I would meet these traffickers various places in New Jersey, in New York, in Florida, in Atlantic City. I would make payments of like maybe five to $15,000, which gave us the opportunity to have recorded conversations with them, identify them, be introduced by them to their superiors, which they were happy to do because they were getting this money from me. And they would lie to the superiors saying that they had known me for years, even though they didn't. And the superiors said, accepted that, accepted that uh, confirmation from them. So it went on and on. And I began to meet various people and went up to actually the, head of the family, whose name was Ferro Bartolotta. This was the Ferro Bartolotta crime family in Sicily. Now, uh, could you, could we stop for just a sure. second? Because I just want to get, make sure I understand what happened right. that evening at, at the pizza parlor. Yes. So people came in, you were supposed to all be arrested. Yes. But when they didn't find the drugs, they just took the money and let everybody exactly. go. Exactly. 
Wow, in, that's something different. Yeah, it was different. It was a scenario that was developed by the FBI supervisor at that time, whose name was Jim Sweeney, who was breathing and, de- breathing and developing these scenarios. So uh, the investigation started like that. Now, um, and what happened is, as I explained earlier, you had to have this kind of a psychological evaluation to be able to do this. And you go through this evaluation because they found through studies of long-term undercover cases that undercover agents sometimes have a tendency to kind of lose their base. Um, and it's something that kind of just happens almost all the time. So when you're undercover long-term, and what I did was I, I gave up my FBI credentials. I was no longer permitted to go to the FBI office. This was for about a two-year period. They changed my name. They gave me another driver's license. And, and it's funny because my name became Jesse Carpenter. And it makes sense that you don't change a person's first name because you have to be able to respond to it if somebody calls you Jesse, as opposed to calling you Hank or Frank or something like that. Right. So you keep your first name. You change your last name. You give up your credentials. They gave me an apartment to live in. That actually became my office. I didn't live there. I actually came home every night. Um, they gave me jewelry. They gave me Rolex watches. They gave me gold chains. They gave me a nice, big, fancy luxury car, which they wired up with recording devices. They gave me recorders to record all my phone calls, and I began to record conversations in person on the telephone with these to see and drug traffickers. And, and, and I, I got to learn, basically, that there was... Um, there was a, a Sicilian connection to Colombian drug dealers and they were exchanging cocaine and heroin. And this family that I penetrated, this, this Bartolotic crime family was a target of an investigation by the New York FBI and DEA for a number of years. But they were never able to penetrate to the, to the, to the leader of that family, which I did. And I made a hand to hand buy with this guy who came from Sicily just to meet me and, and make a drug transaction. But what, what I found was in getting back to the psychological issues that is that I spent a lot of time with these guys and, and what, that the interesting about this interesting thing about this case is that it's very unusual for an undercover agent acting as a drug customer to spend a lot of time with the drug dealers. Reason being is that I'm not a drug dealer. I'm an FBI agent. So once you do a drug transaction with someone, that's over. What do you talk about for the next three or four hours when you're with the guys? Right. You know. So I had to. So what did you talk about with them? Well, I, what I found was that um, you can't really train anybody to be a drug dealer. Because FBI agents, even the ones in the undercover, undercover class, are not criminals. So the criminal lifestyle is a whole different way of talking and dealing and relating to somebody. So what, what, what I fell back on was I had a number of confidential informants who were former drug dealers and drug addicts. And I had to spend a lot of time with them just so I can absorb what the lifestyle was like, what the language was like, what the code words were like. So I used the information that I developed from my relationship with my informants, even though I was meeting the informants, not to get information from them, but just to hang with them, to learn how they talked and what they did. And their stories became my stories. And I used that and transferred that information to these guys and they they bought it. Wow. Now, it's difficult on the undercover agent because you've got to maintain the fact that, you know, you're spending all this time with these bad guys. You know, you, you don't want to become a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's why they have the undercover program where you go through this training and they test you to see if you would be susceptible to um, being turned uh, to the dark side, I guess we, we would say. Exactly. And uh, you, have a, you, you have the case agents you deal with and you have a contact agent whose job it is to see you, sit down with you, talk to you about your problems, handle any issues, and basically let you know that you're an FBI agent, you know. And even though you don't really forget that, but you, you, do, you do psychologically. And, it, and the thing that happens to you, and it happened to me too, is that you start to think, and I thought this would never happen to me because I'm the biggest nerd in the world. You know, I come from a family of law enforcement guys and the fire, firemen. But you start to think that, you know, I'm sitting here in an apartment. I have this Rolex watch. The government gives me $2,000 cash to keep in my pocket all the time. And I don't have to go to the office every day. This isn't a bad life. You know, I'm meeting this bad guys and who actually have to become friends of yours because you can't fake that either. You can't fake not liking them, even though they're drug dealers and criminals. You have to find something about them that you like so you're able to, to pull off your role. You know, people can read you if you don't like them or if you're lying to them, if you're spending hours with them. And I spend hours with these guys. As a matter of fact, on a couple of occasions, I spent a couple of days with them, you know. We went to Atlantic City once and, and you know, we spent the, the we gambled, we spent the night there and, and, and I had to act like I liked these guys. And there were, there were two guys in particular that I dealt with. One's name was 
Eddie and Frankie. There was uh, Ignacio Lina and Francesco Bellidi. They were two Sicilian drug traffickers who worked in a pizza parlor, and they became my friends for two years. All right, and and seriously, did you? Was there a time where you did like them? That you were comfortable around them? You know what? Truthfully, during the time, I had a great time with them. I was friendly with them. You know, I knew what my role was all the time, and you, it's, it's just. But it's a flying; you have to walk, and it's very difficult psychologically to deal with this. And even if you think it'll never happen, you it does. You do have to like them. I mean, oh God, there was one time in particular where um, I was. Uh, we were in Atlantic City, and I had to. Uh, was going to give them an X amount of money as part of this payment for the kilo of cocaine they thought I got a, a kilo of heroin they thought I got away with. But the money that they gave me, the FBI gave me was not the money that I represented to these guys. I think I gave, I told them I was going to give them 12000 it was 10000 mm. So we counted it, and there was 2000 missing. So what I had to do was explain to them, well, the, the girl who gave me the money must have stole some of it. Let's call her right now on the phone and tell her what we think about her stealing the money from me. So I actually called the FBI office, talked to the case agent, and screamed at her. You know why? Because it was 100% real. I wasn't acting at all. They didn't know I was calling the FBI. They thought I was calling this girl who allegedly stole $2,000 of my money. And it worked out great because these bad guys started to counsel me on how you're supposed to count the money first before you give it to them. You know? Wow. So, so it, it was an accident that Judy or whoever yeah. gave you 10000 when it was supposed to be 12000 Yeah, you know, I thought it was supposed to be 12000 yeah. And, and, and wow. that's what happened. That's what happened. So... You, real, you have to be as real as possible. And, and, it's, and actually, the scenario that I was in was very unusual because they found out over the years that you really can't have an undercover agent spend a lot of time with people who are drug dealers. Usually the undercover agent makes the buy, gives them the money, and you use that information that you gain from that drug transaction to obtain maybe a search warrant or authorization or probable cause for a wiretap because you really don't want the undercover agent spending a lot of time with drug dealers when he's just buying drugs. Normally when you have an undercover operation that involves in drug cases, usually the undercover agent is acting as a money launderer, a crook attorney, a banker, so that he doesn't have to really talk about drugs. You know? He doesn't have to develop right. that relationship with them. Because as a drug dealer, another thing is that you're expected to buy drugs all the time. Why are you a drug dealer that doesn't want to buy drugs all the time? So I had to keep coming up with reasons why? These guys wanted me to buy cocaine and heroin constantly, but the government is not going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy drugs from the same people over and over again. Why? They don't need they to. They don't need to. They got the evidence already. So I had to come up with scenarios on my own as to why I couldn't buy drugs from them. But why was it necessary for you to have this relationship with them? Why weren't you just buying the drugs and then getting out? Because why were you developing this relationship? Because we were so uh, we were so lucky in meeting I was meeting other people. I was finding subjects in America who were cocaine and heroin traffickers that the government really didn't know about and I was able to identify these guys because I was being introduced to people all the time. So the investigation was progressing greatly and understand that it was being looked at at the in FBI headquarters as a very successful investigation. So we wanted to continue to do it. I mean, in the case of Farrell Bartolotta, the guy who did the hand-to-hand -hand deal with me, he had been a target for years of the FBI and DEA. Nobody had gotten close to him. And I met him in person. And I was meeting his whole organization. So these two guys I dealt with were introducing me to other people in the organization. And I was having recorded conversations with all these people. We were developing evidence. And, and the investigation was progressing. All right. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You have recorded conversations. So every time you met with them, were you wired yes, up? Yes, I had probably 200 recorded conversations. And tell me how that um, affects you psychologically. You, I mean, not only are you dealing with them and having to, to develop this persona, but all the time you know you're wired up and at any moment they could decide to have you take off your shirt and, and you know, your clothes and they could find out. How how does that affect you? You know, the funny thing is that it affected me after it was over, but there was one particular incident where uh, it was summertime and I was meeting these guys on the New Jersey Turnpike at a rest stop and I had shorts on because it was like really warm outside and me and these two guys and they introduced this Colombian uh, trafficker to me and I gave them their money and we sat down and talked. We sat in the grass in this uh, lawn in a rest stop and I had a recorder which 
I carelessly placed in my front pocket. It was a small digital. Uh, no, it was, we didn't have digital recorders then. It was a small tape recorder about the size of a half the size of a cigarette pack. A Nagra. Uh, well, it was actually smaller than a Nagra. Oh, okay. But anyway, what happened was we sat down in the grass. We talked. I got up from the grass, and the recorder had fallen out of my pocket onto the grass between us. Oh, my God. Fortunately, it fell with the face down, so they couldn't see the tape turning. So what did I do? I picked it up and put it right back in my pocket. It's like there was nothing happened. Like I just dropped something, which is and just walked back to my car and talked. Then I began to shake uncontrollably, realizing that I had become careless. I didn't conceal that recorder properly, and it could have cost me my life. Now, there were surveillance agents there, but all they could have done was arrested these guys after they did something to me, you know, uh, and they frequently bragged about the people that they hurt, why they hurt them for owing the money. And this is all on tape, you know, some very graphic things they've done to people and they, that I recorded them talking about. So one of the issues you have when you become long term recovery is you sometimes have a tendency to get a little careless, which I did that day. There was another incident where I was uh going to New York to meet these guys. And one of the particular guys I dealt with, whose name was Frankie, we really didn't know who he was at the time. We were trying to identify him. and We found out that he was going to go back to Sicily. So I arranged to meet these guys in New York right before they went to the airport to return to Sicily. When I got to New York to meet these guys, it turns out that they had changed their flight and they weren't going to go to Sicily till the next day. So they said, uh, all right, Jesse, come on, we're going to go to dinner. Come on with us. We're going to go to our apartment. We're going to go to dinner. Well, I had to communicate to the agents who were surveilling me that I wasn't going to just go to the airport and come home, but I was going to actually go with these guys someplace. I wasn't able, I was not able to do that. I was in the process of calling my contact agent when I was going to meet these guys. And I told these guys, look, I have to call somebody. I have to do something. I was going to call somebody. I said, well, let me sit in the car and wait for you to make the phone call. Well, I couldn't make a phone call. So being unable to make the phone call, I went off to some New York City apartment without the investigators and surveillance agents knowing where I was going. And you were hoping that they still had their eyes on you, yes. well, even if they didn't know where you were going, but you, did, you weren't even sure if they... I had no idea where I was going. Well, they lost me. I went to an apartment. We went to a restaurant. We had dinner. And I was basically gone for three or four hours. Oh, my God. At the same time, the same night, there was another undercover agent in a similar part of New York who was murdered by a DEA undercover agent whose name was Gary Hatcher, I think his name was, who was murdered by a Sicilian trafficking group because they found out he was undercover the same night. The same night. So your whole team that is supposed to be protecting you and watching you, they have no idea no where idea you was are. Four hours. So everybody was panicking. What was I doing? Having a great time. Went to a great restaurant, ate a great meal, drinking and laughing and joking with these guys. As a matter of fact, what I did find when I was undercover is that uh, there was another whole society that existed in this country, basically, an under society, I called it, where these criminals had access to anything without any fear of being touched by law enforcement. We went to a restaurant in New York that night, me and these two guys. It was a famous Italian restaurant somewhere. There was a long line outside, people waiting to get in. We walked to the front of the restaurant. These guys were recognized by the owners. This was like out of the movies. They let us into the restaurant in front of everybody. They put us on the table right in the middle. We had three or four waiters serving us food and giving us, treating us like kings. I said, this is great to myself to be able to do this. And then we, we hunted all night. Nothing happened. When I got back, everybody was screaming at me because where were you? We were worried about you. Somebody had died that night, you know. But this is the, what you were in, you know. That's why you, don't, that's why you don't do that anymore because it's, it's too dangerous to sit a person who's not a drug dealer with these drug dealers all the time and expect he's not going to be uncovered. So you're saying that now, as far as the FBI's undercover program, they would not do no. what they did with you now. It's too dangerous. No, you just can't. You, you can't create a lifestyle. You know, I'm, like I'm saying, I'm with these guys for hours. They're drug dealers. They know what a drug dealer talks like. You know, I'm not a drug dealer. You know, I'm an FBI agent. No matter how street smart you think you are, you can't carry that on for hours and hours and hours and hours successfully all the time. And eventually they got to learn that they began to suspect me because I wasn't buying drugs. I wasn't using drugs. That was another thing. They expect you to use drugs. As an undercover agent, you can never break the law. I could never use drugs. I had to come up with reasons all the time as why I didn't want to use some of the cocaine that they were selling me. And that was because, you know, this is money to me. It's not something that I do. 
And fortunately for me, one of the two guys I dealt with was similar. He was not a drug user. He says, I'm here to sell drugs, not use them. So he understood that he didn't want to use the product himself because that was taking profit out of his pocket. So he supported me. And thank goodness that got me through. But I mean, but but getting back to the society, I mean, we went to the restaurant. We went to a business in midtown Manhattan that sold the men's clothing one particular time. And uh, the store was closed for us. They bought out champagne for us. And I'm saying to myself, I can't believe this is legitimate businessmen that are scared to death of me and these guys. And he's probably never going to tell law enforcement about this meeting. Wow. So I, I knew that it surprised me more than anything else that there was this under society of people who were committing crimes that had no fear of ever being caught. But right. and, had, and, and you had all of these vendors and business people who catered to them out of fear. Exactly. Of what would happen if they said no. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, so eventually, uh, obviously, the case had to end. Um, we uh, decided to do a takedown. I was going to order another kilogram of heroin, and I was going to meet these two guys at a rest stop on Interstate 95 in Delaware. And I was going to make another buy of cocaine or heroin. I think it was heroin. I was going to give them another $250,000. They were going to give me a kilogram of heroin, and we were going to take them down. So we had New York surveillance teams looking at them in New York and Philadelphia surveillance teams with me. And I went to this rest stop and started getting radio reports from the New York surveillance team that the two guys that were coming to meet me were meeting three or four other guys. And all those guys were coming down in a caravan of cars to Delaware to meet me. And we couldn't figure out why are these other guys there? Were they going to try to rob me? Were they going to try to do something, kidnap me? So everybody started to panic. All the SWAT teams and everybody who was involved couldn't figure, everybody was following everybody down to this meeting in Delaware. So the two guys that I was supposed to meet, actually there was one guy at the time, Eddie, 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 the one of the two guys that I've been dealing with for two years. He came down. I met him in a restaurant. He said, just the, the arrangement was that I was going to give him keys to a rental car that contained the heroin and that I had contained the money in the trunk of the car. He was going to give me keys to his rental car that had the heroin in the trunk of his car. We exchanged keys and the deal was over. The signal was that I was supposed to go into the parking lot, look in the trunk of his car, see the heroin, take my glasses off. And that was a signal for the FBI to move in and arrest everybody. The plan went on like that. But unfortunately, when all these other guys showed up at the rest stop, they started moving around and the surveillance team started following them. And nobody, from what I understand, was watching me for a minute. <laughs> so we go to do the deal. And this is actually on video. You see me look at the heroin, I close the trunk of the car, the guy's standing there with me, they take my glasses off, and nothing happens. I'm thinking to myself, where's the FBI? Where's the arrest team? What am I supposed to do? Let him drive off with this money? So I started to stall and stall, and uh, eventually I said, you know what, I'm going to have to arrest this guy myself, apparently, because I don't know where everybody is. Well, at that point, the FBI moved in and took him down and arrested him and arrested all the other four or five guys that were there. After they were taken down, I was instructed by my superiors that you have to go talk to Eddie, explain to him who you really are, show him your credentials, and show him that you, and tell him that you're really an FBI agent. I did that. Why did they want you to do that right then and there? So that I, so that it wouldn't, it's a safety issue. You first of all, you do not want them to think that you were just an informant. Your life is in much more danger if they think you're an informant than it, than if you're an agent. Okay. So, you want to so they do have the respect for law enforcement. An informant, let's kill him, let's get rid of him. But if you, if they knew that you were actual law enforcement, FBI, then there's much less chance of that happening. Exactly. So I did that. He looked at me, he looked down, and he, he spit on my credentials. Mm. So he was arrested. Now, the story doesn't really end there because months later we're going to go to trial. And these guys are actually going to go to trial. We're wondering, like, why are they going to trial? I have like 200 recorded conversations with them. Hold on for a second. Let me just let me just ask you. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier that they were starting to be suspicious. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because even though you say that they did go ahead with this last deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, actually, we, we we heard this through a jailhouse informant. We didn't hear it. I didn't hear from them. But they told okay. another prisoner that they started to get suspicious because I wasn't buying the drugs that they wanted to sell me. I had to keep coming up with these excuses. But they decided themselves that either we kill them or we go with it because we made a lot of money and we're too deep now anyway to pull back. So they decided not to hurt me, but to just kind of stay with me and see if I was going to make more, keep giving them money and make more money with them. Because I was giving them money all the time. This is the greed is what drove the relationship. 
I'd meet them and give them $10,000. They were happy mm. to meet me, you know, mm. or $5,000. They were happy to meet me. I mean, just getting back, as a matter of fact, just to digress for a minute, there was one time when I met them in Atlantic City, which was the time when I shortchanged them. They took the money and we started gambling. Well, the government told me that I can't lose the government money. So naturally, I lost $600 in about five minutes. <laughs> so I said, what do I do? I can't stop. These guys think I'm a big time roller. So fortunately, they started winning and started giving me money, which I had to turn in to the government after it was over anyway. But I mean, it just shows you the relationship, how it went. But anyway, after it was over, they were going to trial and they're going to trial. And we couldn't figure out why. So I go on the stand. I start to testify. I see the two guys looking at me. They stopped the trial. and They pled guilty. Why? Because even at that point, they thought they were my friends. They didn't believe that even knowing that I was an FBI agent, that our relationship had gone on so long that I would actually testify against them. Wow. And wow. how did I feel? I felt depressed initially after the arrest. It's a natural psychological reaction. I felt that I stabbed my friends in the back. Then, of course, shortly after I realized that, you know, these are criminals. They weren't my friends. But you have to... The the, the 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 undercover role at times, and this has happened to undercover, it becomes real. The person that you become becomes almost real to you. I was really Jesse Carpenter to a certain extent. I didn't have to go to the FBI office. I really had this car and this money and this jewelry. And when I had to give it up, it was like kind of, oh, wow, I have to go back to the office every day like all these other guys and sit at the desk every day. You know, and you get over that. But that's something that you, you really go through, and which is why I never did it again undercover. Because some guys, unfortunately, that's all they can do after they were deep covered for a long time, because it's just a hard bond to break, to become a normal square again. That's what I did. Yeah. And we do know those those guys that um, spend most of their bureau career in in, an undercover role and they do a fantastic job, Um, but they become almost characters, caricatures of 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 themselves and um you know that's what they're known for and i guess they can't go back to as you said sitting behind a desk and and running a case which you were able to do i mean you were very successful in that undercover role but just as successful um as a case agent actually running investigations yeah well that was important to me to be able to do that and i I had this, these, like I said, these confidential informants, I was very successful working confidential informants, and that became uh, the thing that kind of drove my career because even at that point that I was undercover, I still was getting information from informants that led me to future investigations. Let's finish up this uh, case and, and tell me a little bit, if you can, about what kind of time everybody got, and then I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about working with informants. That would be fascinating. So at the end of this trial... What happens? Well, I mean, how how far do you go um, in convicting all of the players that you've met? How many people? I think there were about 15 people convicted. Actually, I mentioned the name Farrell Bartolotta, who was the head of the family who I met uh, in person. He was not arrested initially because he was in Sicily. So there were two trials, Eddie and Frankie, and uh, those guys all pled guilty. Uh, Farrell Bartolotta was arrested, from what I understand. They, were, he, they, they had the Italian army or the police surround his town because he was the godfather of that town in Sicily. And they caught him based on a warrant from our indictment. And they arrested him in Sicily and, and extradited him to the United States to stand trial. And actually, when they found him in Sicily, he had a newspaper article in his house in Italy uh, about my testimony in the case against his, his other guys. <laughs> so when he came back, he went to trial. So we had a long trial. We had to testify. And he had this attorney from New York who was, uh can't think of his name right now, but he was tried, convicted after a long trial. He was sentenced to 20 years, I believe. About 20 years was about the average sentence that these guys got. Even your two buddies? Yeah, they got 20 years and they were deported. And that 20 years is over now. They were deported back to Sicily after their sentence was completed. Has anybody ever tried to reach out to you? Have have any of those people that you met back then um, as Jesse Carpenter ever tried to contact you? Were you in fear of your life in any way after? No, I mean, this is your job. You can't be in fear of your life, you know? You got to do it. This is is a job. And, you know, really, believe it or not, most people who are bad guys kind of accept the fact that you're doing your job. 
you know, they get angry with the confidential informants who were their friends and basically turned them in, but not the agents who were just doing their job. And I really didn't know them. So I haven't gotten any feedback from anybody that there was any kind of bad feelings towards me as a result of me doing my job. So, no. All right. One last thing. Do you remember, and I brought this up with Judy, that one of the times that we that you went down to that pizza parlor in uh, Delaware that I was with you? Do you even remember that? You know what? <laughs> they wanted somebody to be able to have an eyeball on you. And so I was in the car with you. And when you went inside, it was probably one of your initial meetings with the guys. I was in the car and uh, I stayed in the car as it was parked in front of the pizza parlor so I can have a direct eyeball for the surveillance team. You know what? I do recall that now that you mention it. I actually recall that. That's funny because I had forgotten all about that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I remember that now. You were, you were a big part of my undercover act. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it was a big part, but it certainly uh, it's fun to remember that I had this little teeny tiny role. All right, so you you open the you open the uh, the door on informants, and I think that would be fascinating to go into just uh, and maybe you know for a few minutes to talk about how important informants are in first of all being introduced as a, as an undercover and and just in general for cases being able to get information and get insight into uh, what's going on. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, confidential informants, as they're called human sources now, are key or are crucial to any kind of criminal or most investigations, really. I mean, because they're the people that are inside with the with the criminals. They, they, they know their locations. They know their phone numbers. They know their activities. And uh, you, 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 to be successful in an investigation, it's kind of really hard if you don't, when you don't have any inside information identifying some of that, those facts for you. So they're crucial for that reason, definitely. And I, I use them constantly throughout my career, and they're the reason for most of my success, if not all of my success, is my relationship with the confidential informants that I've had. And I've, I've known many of them over the years, and even 10 years after retiring, there's a couple that still talk to me who've changed their lives. So... You know, I'm I'm proud of the fact that I was able to be successful with them. Now, it's it's hard because it's kind of dangerous because a lot of times confidential informants are very manipulative and they try to manipulate you as well as manipulate the people that they're informing against. So you always have to kind of watch that. You have to kind of battle against that. And and but it, it, it's part of the, the job to me and it's, it's part of my life. So, you know, I mean, they've helped in so many ways. I know I had one particular case with the one that really stayed with me more than any other was there was a fugitive that we were looking for. And there was a, an agent friend of mine whose name was Mike Carbonell, who ran the fugitive squad at the time. He knew I had informants and he had a case where he was looking for a couple who had murdered their child. Terrible thing. They had uh, brutalized this kid and who was 10 years old when they his body was found. He had been brutalized his whole life. And... um Mike had a picture of this child. So I said, let me try to find out who did this. So he knew that the subjects were uh, the mother of the child was a, a, a exotic dancer. So I took that picture. I went to these clubs where she worked and I talked to a couple of these dancers. And and after showing them the picture of this poor child, they decided to cooperate. And we used their information to capture the parents of this child who murdered this child and brutalized this child. And uh, those same people became my confidential informants who helped me do uh, successful drug investigations and successful future investigations for years afterwards. So but but that case stays with me because, um, as a matter of fact, that 25 years later, I, two years later, I still think about that child and what the child had to go through for 10 years. And and the fact that, uh, you know, his life was so short and so painful. So basically, after the child is murdered, the parents flee? They flee, yes. They become fugitives. Um, okay. The mother, actually the, the father of the child, they weren't married, but the father of the child and, and lived with the girl who had the baby and they had a second child who was found later when they were arrested and the child was not uh, not uh, abused, but the child had never been, uh, apparently they had never been, the child was feral, which means that the child had never been hugged or kissed or held in any kind of way and it basically was a, like a little animal who was not able to show any emotion. How old? I think it was seven or eight years old. Wow. And unfortunately, they said the child was going to be, be like that for a while. It would be difficult to kind of bring that child back. Definitely that mother and that father 
um, should never have had children. I know, and it stays with me years later. I mean, actually, I still have the picture of the child. I cannot throw it away. Mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. So that might be my issue. But it's. Um, I thank the informants who helped us bring those people to justice. Yeah, informants are a very important part of all law enforcement and definitely the FBI and, and every agent um, is responsible for either having an informant, a cooperating witness, or an asset in order to you know help the investigations that they're working on and develop uh, potential uh, cases in the future. Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, even after I retired, uh, there was a in Philadelphia there was a horrendous uh, bank robbery where there was a police officer murdered, and um, I had been retired probably three or four years. And uh, there was a big uh, search for this bank robber. And um, I'm sitting at home, retired agent, and I get a call from one of my former informants who said, I know where this guy is. Fortunately, I've been talking to some young FBI agents who I continue to have a relationship with, one of whom was involved in the investigation of this fugitive. I called him. I put him on a three-way call with that informant, and they actually caught the guy. So one of my informants helped me catch a cop killer four years after I retired. Wow. That... uh definitely signifies the significance of having informants and having those relationships. And some of those relationships, some like the ones with your, uh, when you're undercover, some of those informant relationships are real. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's, like I said, it's difficult because they can be manipulative. Um, you know, they try to, informants, their whole life is manipulation. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases. But, you know, you always have to kind of battle that too, as well as trying to get information from them that's going to help an investigation. Right. I mean, there are several things informants want from FBI agents. Uh, it could be money. It could be a lower sentence. You want something from them, and they definitely want something from you. Absolutely. Very seldom are they doing this out of the it's goodness of heart. I haven't really met that many that did that, if, if any. All right. Well, this has been fascinating, and there's so many other cases uh, that you could talk about. So maybe in the future we can do... Uh, part uh, part two of the Jesse Coleman FBI story. Sure, no problem at all. I'd be happy to. So, what are you doing now? Uh, mostly I'm retired. I do part-time work, basically doing some uh, private investigations uh, from insurance companies and some attorneys, but mostly I'm retired, yeah. Okay. And when did you retire? Uh, 2007. So it's been nine years now. All right, so we're just about over. Is there... Any closing words that you'd like to say about your career, about the FBI? Yeah, the only closing words was that it was a privilege to be able to, the FBI allowed me to be able to help people. And that was the big thing to me, was to protect the people. That's what we did every day, you know. It, it took hard work. It took time. But the goal was worth it because as an FBI agent, you were able to look at an investigation, sometimes investigations that you started, and uh, you followed those investigations all the way through to conclusion. And based on your efforts, people's lives were changed. People's lives were saved because you at your desk one day decided to handle an issue, an investigated case. And in cases of drug cases, you know, you take some murderers off the street and those murderers, if they weren't taken off the street, would have hurt more people and there would have been more families affected. So to me, it's the greatest thing in the world. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. All right, Jerry. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, in the show notes for this episode, you'll find photos of Jesse. You'll also find several articles, two about his testimony in the Sicilian mob trial, and two just about Jesse. One that was in the Philadelphia Daily News is titled, Drug World's Nightmare Calls It Quits. And it's about Jesse's retirement and a really good summary of his career and some of the cases that we didn't get a chance to talk about. The other one is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it's called FBI Tip Improves on the Legend. And it's all about that tip that he received from his informant that led to the arrest of a cop killer. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends and family. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the show notes, I have all the social media share buttons. So all you have to do is hit the button and send this episode out to the world. And I would really appreciate that if you do. I want to thank Jordan SC and Julia Mac One for great reviews on iTunes. Thanks to all of you who stuck with me 
as I've grown and developed this podcast. As long as I have agents willing to share their stories, I'm going to keep doing this. All I need to make sure is that you're there listening every week. So thank you for your support. Now let's talk about that book, that crime fiction that I mentioned, The Life We Bury by Alan Eskins. Now I'll be honest, the reason I picked up this book at my local independent bookstore, Head House Books in Philadelphia, was because it is an awards winner. It has been both a finalist and a winner for several awards as the best first novel. And as an author who has her first novel coming out in September, I wanted to know what an award-winning debut novel read like. So it's about this college student who gets an assignment to interview an old person. So of course, he goes to a nursing home. He finds some old dude to interview who happens to be a Vietnam vet who was recently paroled after 30 years for a conviction of rape and murder. As he interviews him, the college student realizes that this guy may actually be innocent. And so he begins his quest to clear the old guy before he dies of cancer. It's a, it's a great premise and a great read, and I highly recommend it. My debut novel, which is going to be published in September, is called Pay to Play. And it is about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. And it's actually inspired by a case in Philadelphia that was investigated by two female FBI agents. I love their story. And uh, I also looked at several other cases involving strip clubs and the FBI. And if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you'll receive a case review of all of those sensational strip club cases that inspired me to write my book. This episode of FBI Retired Case File Review was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. Thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.